Father, we thank you just for the opportunity we have once again to be able to open up your word. Father, may it be a time where once again we're just not here to have our ears tickled. But may the ministry of the Holy Spirit have free reign in our lives. Conform us to your image, not the image that we would like to see for ourselves. Father, may we come to grips with who you are, what you want from us in this world. Richly bless our time in your word, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. A man came into my office, and uh, by the way, this is uh, many, many years ago. There's no one here. A man came into my office, and he was looking for some advice on some things that he was wrestling through in his work and in his life and with his marriage and finances and just a variety of different issues that were coming up in his life. I had met with him a couple of times before, but it became very, very apparent that this was not something new. That this man continually had a pattern of going through life, and he'd get himself up to a certain situation in life, and he would choose to do it his own way rather than really trust in God. I started kind of rehearsing over the years uh, with him. Uh, so let me get this straight. And so you'd rehearse with him. You got up to this place, and this is what you chose, yes. And you got up to this place, and this is the way that you went, yes. You got up to this place, and this is where you went, yes. And it was almost like one of those Dr. Phil moments, you know. Well, how is this working out for you? And each time you recognize the consequences of his decision went south. And he finally got to the place, and that's what kind of tattooed in my brain, finally got to the place where he started pounding on the table as he came to grips with what he had done over the years. And the thing that came out of his mouth was, all I have ever done through life is squelch God. I think many of us can identify with that. That over the years as we get to certain decisions in our life that the tendency that we want to follow is the tendency to want to do it in the flesh, to do it in our own power, to think that we know better than God rather than allowing God to basically work through us. And that tendency, that battle, continues to rage on in us as to whether or not we are going to choose to do it in the flesh or whether or not we are going to choose to follow God. And the question really becomes is, what's it going to be? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in the first part of chapter 3, it talks about three different types of men talks about the natural man, it talks about the spiritual man, and then it talks about the carnal man. 
there's the unregenerate, and then there's the regenerate. The unregenerate, obviously, is the natural man. He has not come to a place where he's placed his trust in Jesus Christ. But then as you place your trust in Jesus Christ, then there's two different kinds of men. There's the spiritual man, and then there's the cardinal man. And the difference between the spiritual man and the cardinal man is who's in control of your life. Who is going to rule, who is going to reign in your life? Is Are you going to rule and reign, or is Jesus Christ going to rule and reign in your life? And that's really the dividing line. Who is in control. Gideon had a problem, as we saw last week. The problem that Gideon had is he had a problem with doubt. And because of this problem, there was always this power battle that was going on in his life. Double-mindedness, doubting, not really sure whether or not he could trust God. And when you get to that place where you're not really sure whether or not you can trust God, you're caught in between this power battle as to who's going to control. Is God going to control or am I going to control? And Gideon, because he was double-minded, unstable in all of his ways, had that seed of doubt that continued to plague him, had this power struggle that was going on in his life. But that power struggle is no different than the power struggle that we wrestle with as well. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And when you have a doubt and when you have double-mindedness, there's going to be, be created in you this power vacuum. And whenever there's a power vacuum, something's going to rush in to fill up that void. And the question is, is what's going to rush in to fill up that void? And what's going to rush in to fill up that power vacuum? Sin and flesh will flourish in a power vacuum. And if they're double-minded, if you still don't know exactly which way it's going to go, and you have that power vacuum in your life as to who's going to control and who's going to reign in your life, I guarantee you that sin and flesh will rush in to basically take control if you allow it. So who's in control of your life? Who's ruling and reigning in your life right now. For the nation of Israel, Israel had been, had that tendency as that gentleman that was in my office had that tendency to always take control of their own destiny. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And this through the book of Judges, we continue to see that cycle where they chose to do their own thing. And because of that, they fell into sin. They fell into servitude. They began to cry out for a deliverer. God would raise up a deliverer and then they would be back into fellowship with God for a period of time up until the time that they chose to do it their own way again. But for Gideon, that was the same cycle. Gideon had that doubt that was in his life where he didn't quite know exactly which way to go. 
standing in two ways, double-mindedness. And because of that, there was that power vacuum. And sin and flesh will continue to flourish in that power vacuum because it will continue to rush in. But we have those things that come into our life as well. Last week I talked about any time that you start to get serious about God, there's going to be a squeeze in your life. And as soon as something begins to squeeze you, something's going to come out the top. Whether or not that's going to be faithfulness in God and whether or not you're going to trust God or whether or not you're going to choose to solve it in the flesh and do your own thing. You might be here and you might be faced with some sort of relationship issue, maybe with your spouse, maybe a financial issue, maybe it's work, your health, your kids. Because of that power and that struggle, that pressure, that squeeze that's coming into your life, maybe those seeds of doubt as to which way am I going to turn? Am I going to turn towards God or am I going to try to solve it in the flesh? And if there's a power struggle, if there's a power vacuum that's being created, the question is, is who's going to rule? Who's going to reign? For Gideon... In this passage that we're going to look at today, he moves from great success to great failure. Last week, we kind of saw a little bit of a failure part. We saw his weakness. This week, we see success. He turns towards God, but he ends up in failure. Yet Gideon ends up in the Hebrews 11, which is the commonly referred to as the Hall of Faith. I'm going to change the name. I think I'm going to call it God's Hall of Reclaimed Failures. Because every, everybody that you see in Hebrews 11 is really a reclaimed failure. But we're kind of like that, aren't we? We're kind of the reclaimed failures. But the question is, are you going to be a natural man? Are you going to be a spiritual man? Are you going to be a cardinal man? Who's going to rule in your life? How can we keep that flesh from flourishing? Turn to... Judges chapter 7, where we see Gideon going down that path, and we can learn, I think, four lessons from Gideon as he was trying to keep the flesh from flourishing, and he starts off with great success. And the first thing that we learn from Gideon in chapter 7, as he faces the Midianites, is he finally comes to the place that he realizes that whatever you are facing is ultimately God's battle. Whatever you are facing right now in your life is ultimately God's battle. And Gideon comes to that place where he realizes that. And once he realizes that, he's able to turn in faith and trust and dependence upon God. Judges chapter 7, Gideon, as he faces the Midianites. If you remember last week, this was now the eighth year that those desert-dwelling Midianites swept in from the desert to sweep and strip the land of all of its crops. But this year, it was different. God had raised up Gideon to take on the Midianites. 135,000 Midianites were camped at the the hill hill right across the, the, the Jezreel Valley. But God had raised up 35,000, 32,000 Israelites to take on 135,000 Midianites. Gideon was outnumbered four to one at this point. 
Listen to what happens. Verse 1, chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon and his men, camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. And so 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Gideon's there. He's camped at the spring of Herod. He's looking across towards the hill of Moreh. I've stood there at the spring of Herod. And you can look across and you could basically picture 135,000 Midianites that were over there. But God had raised up 32,000 Israelites. They were outnumbered four to one. But God knew the tendency of Israel. God knew the tendency of Gideon. God knows your tendency as well. And he says, you have too many men. You're outnumbered four to one, but I know that even with that victory, you would claim it for yourself. You would say, I've done it. So now, if anyone trembles with fear, send them home. And so, as it says, 22,000 men left. 10,000 remained. They were now going to be down to the odds of 13 to 1. Can you imagine Gideon as he saw 22,000 of his brethren go back home, leaving with 10,000? But notice that it was fear. Gideon probably could identify with that. But Gideon was taking a step of faith. He was stepping out with God. He was, God wasn't overdone with him yet, but he was taking a step, an t- initial step. He was still there. And he sees 22,000 men leave. But that's all part of God reducing confidence in self. God wants to reduce our confidence in self. And because of that, he continues to reduce them. But the Lord, verse 4, said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water. I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go, he shall go. If I say this one shall not go, he should not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and the Lord said to him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouth. The rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but he kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. 300 men, you got the lappers and you got the kneelers. Takes him down to the spring. Those who brought their hands to their mouth and began to lap like a dog. Those 300 is what God said he was going to give them, give the Midianites into their hands. 300 men against 135,000, 450 to 1. 
were now the odds? Where do you feel outnumbered? Where do you feel overwhelmed? What's too large in your mind for you to be able to handle? You see, from God's perspective, you can never be too small for God to use, but you can be too large. You can never be too insignificant, but you can be too significant. Where do you feel outnumbered? And see, that's the problem, though, that comes in, is that we, we believe that we can do it in the flesh. We believe in some part that we have the capability to be able to handle it all. But God knew that tendency, and he was reducing that confidence in self to be able to increase his dependence upon the Lord. That's what chapter verses 9 through 25 happens. God begins to increase confidence in himself. Verse verse 8, the end of verse 8 says, now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. Verse 9, during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. Verse 10, but if you are still afraid, you know, God is so gracious. He knew that tendency of Gideon. He knew that double-mindedness. If you're still afraid, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what he is saying. Afterwards, we will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura and his servants went down to the outposts of the camps. The Midianites, the Amalekites, the Termites, and all of the other eastern people had settled in the valley thick as locusts, and their camels could no longer be counted in the sand and the seashore. And Gideon arrived just as the man was telling a friend his dream. He said, I had this dream. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, and it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, notice what he did. He worshipped. He worshipped God. God in his grace says, hey, if you're still afraid, if you still have qualms about this, take your, take your servant and go down to the camp. So he and Pura go down to the camp and they begin to listen into this, this conversation that's going on inside, inside the tent. And the guy says, hey, I got this weird dream. This barley bun comes rolling down the hill and it knocks into a camp and knocks over the tent. What do you think? He says, well, that's Gideon. You see, barley was a fitting symbol for Israel because they had taken all the wheat. The only thing that was left to eat was the barley. Barley was normally the food for fodder, you know, the, just the, the fodder that was usually fed to the swine and everybody else. But that, that's what Israel had, had been left with to eat was the, was the barley. Who would think that those who were despised, those who were, those who were just fodder, would be able to do anything against the mighty Midianites? Who would think that 300 would be able to do anything against 135,000 Midianites? Who would think that when you're over outnumbered 451, that God would have any chance? And as soon as Gideon heard that, he realized for the first time that this was not his battle. This was God's battle. 
And when he realized that ultimately this was God's battle, what did he do? He worshipped. He worshipped God. You see, you're never really fully prepared for battle until you bow and worship before God. You're never really fully prepared for what you're facing in your life until you bow and really give it over to him for control. Whatever you are facing, wherever you feel outnumbered, have you given it over to him, hands down? Or are you still holding on to something because you think that you can do it in the flesh? Gideon realizes that it's God's battle. So what he gets, what happens? Verse 15, he returns to the Israelite camps and he says, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. And dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets, empty jars with torches inside. You know, I love this part and I love this whole section of, of, of Judges chapter 7 because can you imagine, all right, you're 300 guys left. You got 400 you know, 450 to one. And, and Gideon comes back. He says, all right, we're going to take these things. Step up here to the weapons locker. You know, and you're sitting there going, yeah, all right, I'm ready. Bring it on bazookas, you know, you know, bring on the M16s. All right, I'm ready. And he goes, yeah, here's your jar. You, you get a trumpet and you can have a torch. Three hundred guys going to take on four hundred fifty thousand Midianites with jars, torches, and trumpets. But see, it's not our responsibility to try to figure out how God's going to pull it off. And we spend so much of our time trying to figure out how God's going to handle the problem. That's not our responsibility. What God is asking of us is faithfulness. What God is asking of us is trust in him. Stop trying to figure out how God's going to pull it off. And for those guys, it looked absolutely insane. How in the world are you going to be able to take on 135,000 with jars and torches and trumpets? Where are you spending your time right now trying to figure out what, how God's going to pull it off? And we do that. We start arguing. But you know what that is? That's doubt. We want to try to figure it out. We want to take control. We want to have it all in nice little bits and pieces. We want to be able to understand. You may not be able to understand. And God reduces that confidence in Gideon down to nothing, to a place where he is left with just trusting in him. Watch me, verse 17. Follow my lead. I'll get to the edge of the camp. Do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blows yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. 
Gideon and the 300 men around him reached the camp in the the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets. They broke the jars in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands, holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying as they fled. And the 300 trumpets sounded. The Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. As they came into the camp, 300 guys began to smash the, smash the, the, the jars. It sounded like the clashing of, of swords against shields. And in the middle of the night, all of a sudden they were awakened. You got camels everywhere. You got men everywhere. Then all of a sudden, every shadow begins to look like an enemy. And they begin to slash at each other. God's battle... And Gideon realizes that, hey, this is God's battle. All he is asking of me is to be faithful. And that's all he's asking of you as well. It's not your responsibility to try to figure it out. You want to figure it out. You want to have it all nightly, neatly packaged into a nice nice little package to be able to control it. Because we like control. We want to have control. God's just asking you to be faithful. To walk with him. Well, they take off onto a, onto a chase. They, they chase down. They finally cut off the heads of Oreb and Zeb. I love those names, Oreb and Zeb. <laughs> Ken... Ken loves those names too. Sounds like two good old boys from Mesquite, doesn't it? You know, Oreb and Zeb. If I ever have a dog again, I'm going to name that dog Zeb. A great name, Oreb and Zeb. Anyway, they chase him down and they realize, how can he keep that flesh? Well, he realizes that, hey, the first thing is to realize that God's in control. But secondly, how can we keep that flesh from flourishing in our life? Secondly, too, fix your heart completely on the mind of God and on the will of God. Fix your heart completely on his will. What we have in chapter 8 in the first part is really a mop-up operation underway. Gideon takes off as he goes down and he, he basically begins to pursue them with 300 men. He he's, kills off a bunch and he's looking, looking for 15,000. He's, he's on a mop-up operation. He heads up trying to go down to catch up with Zeba and Zalmunna, which were the other two kings. He had already killed Oreb and Zeb. But as he goes through, he deals with a variety of problems. And he deals with them very respectfully, and he deals with them very with, with great confidence. He, he deals with the resentment of the Ephraimites in verses 1 through 3. He captures those two kings in verses 4 through 12. He then has a, has a conflict with the, the people of Succoth and Peniel because they had refused to really do it. Now, don't get so bad... Don't beat up on them so bad when you get to that section because they lived on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan. They were the closest people to the Midianites. And so they had, and it's really kind of a fun interchange that's going on, they had that same double-mindedness as to who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust Gideon or are we going to trust Midianites? Because we're closer to the Midianites than we are to Gideon because we're over on the eastern side of the Jordan here and we live right next door. It's like our next door neighbor. And so they were a little hesitant, but Gideon comes in and he basically squashes them. 
and, and says, hey, no, I'm in control. But then he gets down to the execution of the Midianite kings in verses 18 through 20. And he, he asked, verse 18, he, said, he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, these were the two kings that he, he captures, verse 18 of chapter 8. He asked Zeba and Zalmunna, he says, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? They said, men like you. <laughs> I love it. Men like you, each one with the bearing of a prince. Now, Gideon was probably a pretty impressive guy, had the bearing of a prince. But that probably had a little bit of puff-up factor in Gideon's life. Yeah, I got the bearing of a prince. I got the aura. I'm able to do it. Gideon replied, verse 19, he says, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy. And notice, he was afraid. Have you picked that up? That fear that continues to go through the chapter? He was afraid. Like father, like son. He was afraid. You know, in that, that culture, it was a disgrace to die at the hand of a woman or a youth. So Gideon here, because he realized that it, you know, it was kind of somewhat of a disgrace, he was, had the intent of not only humiliating them and killing them, he, he really wanted to disgrace them as well. He says to Jethro, hey, do it. He couldn't do it because he was afraid. So Zeba and Zalmunna said in verse 21, he says, come do it yourself. As the man is, so is his strength. And so Gideon stepped forward and killed them. But then he took the ornaments off their camel's neck. You know, it sounds good. It says, you know, hey, fix your heart completely on doing the will of God. Gideon at this point was focused. He saw God work and he was focused on doing God's will. And God bless him, he was fixated on that. He was going to accomplish God's will. And you sit there and you go, way to go, Gideon. The tendency, though, for us is to sit back and say, well, that's easy. Yeah, I'm going to fix my mind on doing God's will. Let me push back a little bit and say, really, are you? Are you, really, are you really committed to doing God's will? Or are you really committed to just make it comfortable for yourself? You see, there's a tendency that we have is to say one thing and do another. The same tendency that Gideon had. To say one thing and then do something else. And we're going to see that in a second. But it's easy to say, yeah, I'm, I'm really committed to doing the, the will of God. Are you really? Are you really all in? Gideon was all in at this point in his life. He was pursuing them. He was weary, yet he was pursuing. And he was all in. Are you all in or are you just partially in? After all, just want to make it maybe more comfortable for myself. I don't want to be too radical. I don't really want to rock the boat. I don't want to make it uncomfortable for people. I don't really want to make it too place. I, I really want it to be safe. Safe is easy. 
Safe is that place where you're not rocking the boat. Safe is where you have it under control. But you know, the thing with God is, is that God wants you out there on the line. And when you get out there on the edge of the line, it's not safe. When you start being all in for God, you're being called to a radically different lifestyle, which is different than all the rest. You're called to be something different in the world that the world is not familiar with. And that's not safe. But you know, it's interesting, when you get out there on the edge, and when you're not in the safe, that's where you find life. Life is not really found in the safe. Life is found taking some risks for God and being out there in radical obedience to him. At this point in Gideon's life, he was fixed on completing and doing God's will in his life. He was out there on the edge. He was pushing his men to the very edge of their exhaustion level. He wasn't being safe. What about you? Now, it's really safe to just listen to other preachers rather than to get into the Word of God for yourself. God's not really interested in just substitutes and counterfeits. God's interested in a personal relationship with you. See, God God doesn't really meet your innermost needs by proxy. He meets it with a personal relationship with him. And if you want to really experience life in him, that's when you've got to get out of the comfort zone and you've got to push the edge. I remember uh, years ago, our family went uh, whitewater rafting. I'm sure that you've been whitewater rafting, you know. Whitewater rafting is one of those things where, you, you know, there's those pools where you, you kind of run down the pool, but you're always listening for the whitewater. You're always listening for the rumble. The family was there, and, you know, you get on the pool, and you're kind of floating down the, the river, and you're looking at the, the nice, nice scenery and everything, but you're always kind of listening, listening for the whitewater, because that's the risky part. That's where the fun is. That's where, that's where the life is going to be found. And, you know, you hear the rumble, and then you turn to the guide, and you say, what is it? And he goes, oh, that's raft ripper, you know, or widow maker or something. You don't go, yeah! <laughs> Bring it on! You know, and th- because that's what you're there for. You're there to run the rapids. You know, God puts you here to run the rapids. But so often, we just kind of gather together, you know, it's kind of like floating down the middle of the street. You're not in the white water. You're just kind of floating down the, the, the middle of the river. You're looking at the nice scenery. You might splash each other with a little bit of fellowship now and then. But you're really there for the white water. And that's where the, that's where the life begins. You really out there on the edge for God? Are you really committed to being all in? Gideon at this point was all in. Then he makes probably the pinnacle of his statement as he allows God to rule and really makes that statement. He comes to verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, he said, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Gideon. Gideon is here given credit. 
First, they gave Gideon credit that he did not deserve. And second, they made a request that was outside the will of God. They said, you rule over us. But see, for Israel, they had that power vacuum. They didn't have that personal relationship with God. They weren't really following him. They had that power vacuum. If you have that power vacuum, something's going to fill in. And they said, yeah, Gideon, you do it. Now for Gideon, he was probably going, yeah, that sounds cool. But Gideon, verse 23, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over over you. This is the greatest victory of Gideon. He says he knew it in his head. He knew it in his head. The Lord rule. This is what is right. This is what is good. This is what is should be. The Lord rule. And he had it in his head. but he didn't have it in his heart. And this is where we see his next failure is because he begins to compromise. Verse 24, he said, I do have one request that each of you give me an earning from your share of the plunder. It was custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. And they answered, We'll be glad to give them. So he spread out a garment. Each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. And the weight of the gold rings he asked for came to about 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on the camel's neck. Verse 27, Gideon made a gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. And all the Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. You see, Gideon knew that probably Israel had a power vacuum. He knew in his head that it needed to be God to rule, but he said one thing and yet he did another. He had it in his head, yes, I'm going to follow God, but then he chose something else. You see, the temple and the tabernacle, not the temple, but the tabernacle right then was in Shiloh. Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. He was not from the priestly tribe of the Levites. He was not a priest. And what Gideon should have done is said, you need to worship God. Let's go to Shiloh. But instead, he kind of sets up this cheap substitute. And he says, hey, let's just make this ephod. Let's put it up in my town. And we'll worship it there. It's a lot more convenient. Shortcut to spirituality. A counterfeit, so to speak. Not the real thing. He says one thing, and then he does another. But we do that, don't we? I'm going to follow God next week. I'm really committed but then you never get into the word of God. We begin to make these cheap substitutes, 
counterfeits towards spirituality that really doesn't bring satisfaction. You see, God really wants to help mold you into a committed follower of Jesus Christ and to take you on the ride of your life. He's not really interested in just helping to mold inspirational junkies. And an inspirational junkie just kind of goes from fix to fix, looking for the next high. And maybe from the next radio program to the next radio program to the next guru to the next teacher, and this is what I like, and this is what I like. And the problem is, is now, as soon as you start listening to all those different voices, then you become critical which one's the best. You begin to substitute all of those for a personal relationship with God and really coming down to a place where you make the decision, I'm going to trust God, and not only in your head, but in your actions you follow through and you do the hard work that it's going to take to really be committed to him. Curtailed commitment flirts with failure. You know, he uh, compromised in complete obedience to the word of God. He knew what the word of God said, most likely, but he compromised. He curtailed it. And whenever you start to compromise, it's going to lead you off. And he thought one thing, yet he did another, and that was his downfall. And consequently, the rest of the chapter, basically, Midian was subdued. They had peace, but then he had a concubine, lived, son of Joash, and then finally, what we have in the next chapter is Abimelech. The question is, who's in control of your life right now? Who's in control of your life right now? Are you in control or is God in control? Are you the spiritual man or are you the cardinal man? When you have doubts, there's going to be a spiritual vacuum. There's going to be a vacuum, a power vacuum that comes up in your life and something's going to rush in to try to control it. And as soon as that power vacuum is formed, I guarantee you that sin and flesh will flourish in a power vacuum. And if you're struggling with those sins and you're struggling with that stuff, I can tell you exactly where it is. God's not in control. You've decided that you know better. You've decided that you can do it better. You've decided that I can, me, I want to control it. God's saying, hey, I want to be number one. I want you to trust in me. I want you to rest in me. You can't compromise complete obedience to the word of God. You can't compromise it. You can't make it say something that you want it to say and find fulfillment. You have to submit yourself and come to the place where you say, I am going to trust and believe God to be able to move forward. And when you do that, life is there. I love Romans chapter 6, verse 16. It says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death 
or of obedience resulting in righteousness. What's it going to be? Gideon was faced with doubts. That was his flaw. But there were moments where he had a radical dependence and radical obedience upon God. He found life. He found life. It really gets down to who's in control of your life. Dr. Phil would say, if you're walking down the path of continuing to control your life, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Probably not too good. Why don't you try God? Come back to his word. Father, thank you for the opportunity once again just to be able to look at Gideon. Father, we see a lot of ourselves in that tendency to wrestle against you in our own doubt and fears. Gideon had a lot to be afraid of, yet ultimately he did come to a place where he trusted you, but then said one thing in the end and decided to do another. Father, I pray that we would, as we come to those battles in our life, as we come to those times where we are tempted to take control and do it our way, Father, I pray that you would bring back to our memories men like Gideon. And that would spur us on to continue to trust in you no matter what. Thank you that you are trustworthy. Thank you that you care. Thank you that you love us. That you want the best for us. That life is not found in the counterfeits. Life is not found in those things that we create. But true life, abundant life, is only found in you. May we be drawn to that. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.